Hey there, Foster Care Nation. This is Jason with Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. On this week's show, we have Robin Goble from Robin Goble Counseling. Amanda had tagged me in some of her posts on her social media, and I went over and looked at her website. If you head on over to goblecounseling.com slash shop, you can find her webinars on demand, where you'll find topics like creating felt safety, toxic stress in the developing brain, grief in foster and adoptive children and families, and noticing self, capturing moments for parental self-reflection. There's a lot of great value in here, and I would highly recommend heading over to our website and downloading some of them. If you keep your eyes open, you'll find a lot of sales that come up. Right now, I believe she's at a 20% off sale. The last time I saw a 50% off sale, I actually stocked up quite a bit to be able to get a lot of value for a little bit of money. Also, I just wanted to mention that Amanda and I, while we always do this show for free, and it's always going to remain that way, it does cost us a bit of time and money to be able to produce it. For every episode that you hear, it takes about four hours worth of work to get it posted and all, everything that's involved with getting it together. If you'd like to help us support some of the time and money we spend, we would love it. You can find us on patreon.com slash fostercarenation. If you'd like to donate, any amount is amazing, especially the small donations. Those are the ones that really add up over time. If not, that's fine too. Really the most valuable thing you could possibly do is to share this information with your friends. Whatever you decide to do, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. Welcome back to Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey, where we like to talk about everything foster care and adoption related. Whether you have foster kids, adopted kids, bio kids, step kids, or any kind of relationship, we believe this information can be helpful across the board. If you'd like to come check us out online, you can find us at our website, fostercarenation.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey on our page or sign up to join the group. We'd love to see you there. We appreciate you taking your time to listen to our stories and hopefully it can bring some value. If you have any questions or are interested in having your story highlighted on our show, please contact us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. Hi, and welcome back to Foster Care, an Unparalleled Journey with Jason. And Amanda. And today we are here with Robin Goble. I ran across Robin online where she had some uh, webinars, I believe it was, that I read a little bit about and said, oh my goodness, I need to pay attention to some of this. I reached out to her recently and said, hey, would you be willing to come talk to our audience? Because you look like you have a lot of knowledge that our world needs to know. After a couple email conversations, I got her on our show today. Robin is a psychotherapist who is currently focused on teaching, training, and writing. Her clinical focus has always been children with a history of complex trauma in their families. She closed her private practice in Austin, Texas, and her family and her relocated to Grand Rapids, Michigan for a simpler, cheaper life. That sounds like an awesome idea right about now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has, there has some, been some benefits. We've been able to see how life is a little different here than it would have been if we were doing this down in Austin. So I have one very small experience with Austin, Texas, back when I was in the military and stationed down that way. And all yeah. I can tell you is there is a La Quinta Inn that I'm not allowed to be in. <laughs> well, sometimes I wonder if any of us should be in a La Quinta necessarily. I've been in a lot of them myself. Yeah, I don't uh, disagree, but, but I was a young guy and single. And let's just say that that weekend is a little bit fuzzy. I think I fuzzy. may have been doing some some less than wise things down there on, what is that? Is that 8th Street or 11th Street or something? 6th. 6th Six. Six. Six Street, yeah. yeah. Yeah, my math was yeah. a little off that weekend, too, apparently. <laughs> Austin's a great, fantastic, fun place to live. And, and what we've been saying is everybody else thought so, too. And it just got crowded and expensive. And we were ready for something a little different. So here we are. That's there you awesome. go. What do you think about Michigan so far? Well, you know, I, I grew up here. So I left when I was 17, um, which was a long time ago. So we've kind of come home. Um, but we have been very pleased with the decision for sure. It has been slower and less expensive and, um, 
yeah, we've been successful at our at the things we were trying to change. Well, I've got to say, you do sound more like a Michiganite than you do a, a Texan. Yeah. yeah, it's funny how some things just don't ever go away. <laughs> I spent a couple of years in the South as a, as a young kid, about six, seven, eight years old, I think I was. And uh-huh. if I get around a Southern accent, I have to be careful not to. It, it, that was a lot of it's years it, ago. It'll pop right uh-huh. back out. It'll. It's easy to slip back into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, when I was stationed down there, I had people from back home say, "Why are you talking with that accent?" And it just. I'm like, I'm not. But I can't it, help it. It just pops out. <laughs> yeah. Before you know it. <laughs> it's amazing how much that stuff from our childhood will reach back into today, and yeah. and, and grab a hold of us. And absolutely, I think that that probably has a whole lot to do with what we'd like to talk about today. You know, mm-hmm. our childhood comes out in our adulthood in ways that we just don't understand oftentimes. And especially in that part that that you had in your bio about complex trauma, that's one of those things I never really understood. You know, my my dad was, full disclosure, me and my dad had a great relationship. I'm not, I wasn't mad at him at all. You know, he passed uh, a few years ago, but Mm -hmm. he was a great guy, right? He did the best he could with with what he was able to do. But my dad never really had a good father figure throughout his life. His dad mm-hmm. passed away when he was really young. And there were mm-hmm. some other guys who came through his life. And he told a couple stories. Not all of them, I'm sure. One of them ended up with a fork stuck in his head. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he had a lot yeah. of that, that sort of stuff in his life. But yeah. in all honesty, his, his viewpoint was, hey, you might have had a rough life, but you just got to get over it. You know, I had a tough life, too, and I've managed to get over it. And you can do it, too. Yeah. And to some level, maybe there's there's a level of truth in some of that. You know, at some place you have to reach down and kind of bootstrap your way through parts of your life. But as a as a parent, as a foster parent or an adoptive yeah. parent, to understand some of those big traumas and how they affect you throughout your life and how our response as foster parents, as adoptive parents, as adults in general dealing with young kids with these big traumas really mm-hmm. shapes and affects who they become. And that's a difficult thing for us to understand a lot of times. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think you're, you know, speaking about something that's very common in that the, you know, bad things happen to me too. And I'm, I turned out okay, or you just kind of got to get over it. And I have a lot of gratitude for that individual's coping skill, right? Like that, approach through life has probably been very successful for them um, and helped them kind of be okay in the world. And um, it's not necessarily an approach that works for everybody. And some things aren't about, you know, getting over it. You know, it's about really understanding how certain experiences or missing experiences has impacted the brain and the body and the nervous system, and then how that translates to capabilities and behaviors. Yeah, that capability part. That was mm-hmm. something that, that we learned with our very first foster placement. Um, they're still with us to this day. It was a brother and sister pair, but they, they watched their father murdered. And mm-hmm. that was really traumatic. And when they first, I mean, obviously, but at, at two and three years old, that affected a really significant point in their life. And when they came to us, I don't know how long after um, the actual, um, the actual experience was that they came to us. It was a matter of a few months. I'm certain at least, but they showed up and the, our, our now son, when he was, you know, three years old, he would get upset. And when he got upset, he didn't get angry. He didn't get frustrated. He didn't, he didn't get peeved. He didn't get, you know, he didn't have those levels. He had two places in his heart. One was the world is good. Let's go play. And the other place was amazing level of grief and trauma which has come out as literally 45 minutes of straight blood curdling scream not a let off not as calm down and back up but it was just and that kind of we had no idea what to do with that right because we never experienced that at that point yeah we hadn't totally yeah we hadn't experienced it we had no training around that um and at that i mean we're going back at least a decade and and i Mm -hmm. don't think they were teaching a lot of that at that point especially not in, in the foster system yet So, you know, we had no idea. And honestly, we just did our best is all we could do. You know, for the most part, Mm -hmm. we would take turns. We would have to take the the mattress off his bed, put it in the middle of the floor so he didn't throw himself on the wall and let him just lay there and roll around and wail. And we would just take turns sitting in the room quietly with him, kind of trying to talk and see if we can bring him down. 
until I'm sitting there like, man, I, I need to step out for a minute. And we would right. kind of tag in and out. It was awesome because, you know, it gave us an opportunity to work together, but we yeah. really didn't have Sounds a clue like what we were doing through that. And, mm-hmm. and we've kind of learned a whole lot through because these kids have taught us so much mm-hmm. over the last several years. But that's one of those challenges that nobody trains you for that. Nobody, nobody tells you, Hey, this kid, he has this thing and he doesn't have the ability to really separate this level of anxiety from that level, from that level, from that level. He really only knows to. And it wasn't a matter of him choosing to act in that way right. at that time. Right. It was a matter of what he was capable of. Right. And we didn't really fully understand that yet, but that's a powerful piece once you understand that you're dealing Oftentimes, not with a kid who chooses a behavior, but with what a trauma is doing in a kid's brain. Right. Absolutely. I mean, the reality is, is we actually have much less control over our behavior than we think we do kind of in general, all all of us. Um, That conscious conscious choice and awareness makes up a very, very teeny tiny portion of what's unfolding in any given moment. And the younger you are and the more or the, the fewer experiences you've had with somebody helping you when things are not good, you know, the less capable you are of um, having any kind of choice over behavior that the brain and the body and the nervous system just flood and then there's kind of no, there's no turning back, which just sounds like what you were experiencing. Yeah. How do you, how do you help parents understand maybe how to look and see, look at a kid and, and, and decide that this moment is a place where they're just acting out. This is mm-hmm. typical two-year-old behavior. This is a two-year-old who chooses to kind of, who's acting out for some other reason, but they're, they're making that choice because they really, really want the Xbox, the TV, the cookie, mm-hmm. whatever. And mm-hmm. this is a moment where a kid is not making a choice where his brain, you know, his amygdala has hijacked the rest of his brain and body and we're staring at, at trauma. How can you yeah. kind of see that and make those, those decisions in the moment properly? Well, some of it's about getting to, you know, take, having the time to get to know your individual child. And when you're a foster parent, that just, that can sometimes take some time to really distinguish between the subtleties in the way that they're expressing these different ways. Um, but I also go back to really what's kind of a core philosophical belief for me, which is that, um, kids who are regulated, kids who are connected to you and themselves and kids who are feeling safe overall, they, you know, my cliche thing I say is they quote unquote behave well. What I really mean by that is they behave in like ways we expect kids of that particular age to behave. (laughs) Right. And so it kind of, regardless of someone's history, you know, thinking about it, what's going on with this kid, because Kids need adults to take care of them to survive. And they definitely need their parents to take care of them to survive. And so it really doesn't make any biological sense for a kid to behave in a way that really makes their parent angry or not want to be with them. Those two things just don't really go together. So anytime we're we're looking at a behavior that is kind of pushing a parent away or making them really frustrated or really angry. It's always worth pausing and saying like, okay, what's going on here? Is this kid, you know, is this kid regulated for their age? Is this kid feeling connected to me right now? Because a kid is connected to me is going to be cooperative. That doesn't necessarily mean like compliant and do everything I say, but there's going to be some level of cooperation involved. And is this kid feeling safe? And if the answers to any of those are is no, then we want to kind of intervene there as opposed to providing like a, a punishment per se. So I kind of think regardless of what a kid's history is, we can set boundaries about their behavior while also understanding kind of what's driving their behavior. And it's not that they're being difficult or oppositional or hard to get along with or anything like that. They're just doing the best that we can. And I can still 
set a boundary about that behavior. Yeah, what what I'm hearing you say is that just because you have behavior that's that's not the behavior you're looking for doesn't mean you need to have a punishment, but sometimes boundaries have consequences that sure. that you can have in place. I think the the real difference jumps in though is when as adults we become aggravated when we become dysregulated ourselves in the middle of that. Yep, you totally. Know, because, you know, we've all got our own level of trauma that comes out of our own childhood and our own past. Yep. And I think that's maybe maybe worth figuring out how to how to understand when we're stepping into the place of our own dysregulation and figuring out how to how as a parent you can kind of bring that rein your own dysregulation back in so that you can deal with a kid who's struggling with something so difficult. Yeah. Well, I actually think that's kind of the golden ticket. That's the most important place to pay attention. Um, you know, families who have kids who have really big, scary, dangerous, out of control behaviors, um, understandably really want support with like behavioral techniques. Um, and that makes perfect sense. And I, and I like to help with that as well, but really the place we get the most bang for our buck is exactly what you just said, which is, how do I kind of keep my wits about me even when this kid is doing something that I don't like or is upsetting or um, dangerous? Yeah, because, I mean, let's be honest. If I know you said you have a 14-year-old son, so uh -huh. you've experienced the toddler years, you've experienced right. those young years, and phrases like, don't climb the entertainment center. You right. shouldn't be on top of the, the, the table. You know, right. this is not a place to jump. <laughs> right, know? right. It, it's, you know, we find ourselves in a lot of positions where you'll see a kid doing something that, that may be truly dangerous. Right. And it kind of fires right. off our own our own fear response. Right, absolutely. And it's so easy to, to fire into that, something that, that gets us back their fear response. And it seems like that's right. something that just spirals up. and It does. And, and learning how to regulate that. I mean, that's, that's a challenge. I wish I could explain that to people. I'd be probably a rich guy if I could figure out how to write that book. <laughs> it is really hard. I mean, we have to work really hard to, first of all, depersonalize our kids' behaviors because it's really, really easy after you've told any child a number of times to stop doing something to assume that they're doing, they're continuing to do it on purpose to make you mad or to ignore you or to be controlling or defiant or any number of um, labels that we want to give because we don't like to be ignored and we don't like how it feels to be afraid because the behavior is dangerous. And so we get, um, we jump to a place of, of making assumptions about what's driving the behavior, labeling the behavior, because that's what mildly and moderately dysregulated people do is we want to get controlling and we, we lose the ability to stay really curious. Um, and the reality is, is that um, if I'm telling a kid multiple times in a row to stop doing something and they're still not stopping doing it, there's something happening for them that is one, maybe preventing their brain from having the impulse control not to do this thing that's really cool. Or there's something happening in my relationship with this kid where they don't really care about what I'm saying. And so I want to go after that behavior from one of those two lenses, right? Like if this is about a, I mean, three-year-olds have terrible impulse control. They're supposed to, that's what their brain is doing. You know, and so if I'm repeatedly telling a three-year-old to not do something and they still keep doing it, I need to make some environmental changes to what's going on because it's it's clear that that kid just doesn't have the impulse control to not do this really cool thing that they really want to do. And like jump the brain, off the kitchen table? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and some of our kids have more, like they're kind of just temperamentally one more cautious or to have a little just slower way their brain fires in a way. And so it is easier for some kids to find that pause or to stop. Whereas for other kids, like as soon as that impulse to jump or do this really cool thing, cause they're learning about the world still, right? Like three-year-olds are 
learning about themselves and about their bodies and about all the cool stuff that's happening in the world by doing, 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 doing. And it's just so hard to stop like the brain firing that says jump off the kitchen table. (laughs) And so again, if I am telling a kid multiple times in a row, stop doing something and they still don't stop. I really need to be curious about if I need to make a major environmental modification. Some kids need a lot more quote unquote toddler proofing than others. Um, And the other thing I want to consider is what's my relationship like with this kid overall and in this moment, right? That this kid is really connected to this behavior they're doing right now, jumping off the kitchen table. I, if I want this kid to stop doing that, I've got to get connected to that kid. And, and so I might need to stand up. I might need to go over. I might need to put my hands on their body and really get eye contact. I might need to physically pull them off the table. Um, right. Like I need to sort of intervene, offer a new connection. Okay. And then if they're still doing it right, because we've all taken the kid off the table and you know, we've all done all those things. Mommy said, no, I'm putting you off the table. And the kid just runs right back. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You met some of my kids. Exactly. We still then need to be curious about like, okay, do I need to make an environmental modification? Cause it's just too tempting. The kitchen table is too tempting and I need to do something else to get this kid's brain excited about something else that is safe. And that is something that he can do, which again is a way different interpretation of the behavior than I've got to get this kid to mind me or to be obedient or listen to me. Um, Or with kids with, you know, attachment trauma in their history, it's always valid to consider um, is this kid have a, a history with parents or with caregivers that makes them not trust parents or caregivers. And is that what's going on here? Well, I still have to set the boundary. I still have to keep the kids safe. I still might have to provide them with something new and more exciting to do than to jump off the kitchen table. But that's still a different interpretation of the behavior problem than this kid's not minding or they're being defiant or they're being, you know, purposefully naughty, right? You know, it's <clears throat> this is something that in a dad's group I'm in, I've, I've come across recently, and it's the idea that when kids are super little, control is control is is what we start with, right? You have a baby, and there's a lot of control, but you quickly have to learn to get past control and begin to get into the place where you influence their lives. Yeah. Does that yeah. does that sound about like like what you're talking about there? I mean, I think the reality is, is that all of us at parents come to that moment of realization where we're like, oh, I have absolutely no control over this other person's behavior at all. I thought I did. <laughs> and and at that length of time we thought we did varies, you know, based on <laughs> you and your kid's temperament and their history. But there comes a real point where you're like, oh, this kid's a totally separate human than me. Like, I have no control over their behavior. What I have is influence over how connected we are relationally and how I set this kid up for success and how I set structure and boundaries. Those are the things I can do. That's, that's what I've been (laughs) learning over the last several years. Uh, It's a bummer. I know it it is. Control (laughs) would be wonderfully easier. I I I mean, the first time your four year old looks at you and says, no, I don't want to give you a hug and kiss tonight mm-hmm. before I go to bed. It's like, whoa, okay. Oh, yeah. We're going to try this one out now. All right. Uh-huh. How right. do we do this? I've been dealing with that one <laughs> off and on between the two little ones for probably the last six months or so. And, and I always offer that. It's, you know, hey, come here. I'll give you, you know, I'm, dad's going to bed because I get up early in the morning. So I go to bed early. You know, dad's yeah. going to bed. Let me give you, you know, let me give you nighttime lovings before we go to bed. And, and I get that quite a bit. I don't want lovings. Well, that's one of the kids. They have their own bedtime ritual. You know, yeah. Everybody does yeah. something. Else it's a handshake. Their- it's a, <laughs> th- there's a whole routine. And, and even if they don't want, you know, want any physical affection, I still, you know, make them come over to right. me. I say, you know that I love you, right? <laughs> yes. You know that I, even when you're rotten, I still love you. Yeah. Yes. Even yeah. when you're in trouble. And I started doing that because somebody had planted a seed of that, of that nature in my mind. And I just started doing that for, for a while. And it was funny one time when they had done something that they ended up in some trouble because they were acting like kids act. And, and, um, there was a consequence involved. 
And, you know, of course, he was all upset and sad. And mm-hmm. I looked at him and said, you do know that, that I love you, even when you're in trouble, right, bud? Mm-hmm. He says, I know you tell me all the time. <laughs> you know, and, and even I, I, when I'm rotten. Yeah, and I love it that, that they understand that because yeah. I know it's really easy for kids to pick up that, that what is it that you would call the performance based connection. Yeah. You know, you only like me when I do this. You only love right. me when I perform the way that you want me to. And that's right. something that I've tried to overcome, not because I'm some kind of a genius with, with kids, but because I've made so many mistakes with so many kids over the years that uh-huh. wisdom only comes from, from bad decisions. Isn't that the truth? Right? <laughs> but when you We've know better, you learn can from our do mistakes. better. You know, when <laughs> exactly. you know better, you can do better. And, exactly. and that's the thing with our children is our children are across the board. None of them are alike whatsoever. The right. way we parent one is not the way we parent another. It just, it would not work. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing that I see is so many parents are comparing themselves to other parents and what they do. Yeah. And what yeah. looks like control or discipline or reprimand in our house is not what it looks like for somebody else's house. Mm-hmm. And we get out there and they're like, well, I would just make this kid do this and we would just, we would do this mm-hmm. and we would do that. Well, I'm not a dictator. I'm a mother. Right. I'm a parent. I'm supposed to be a nurturer, you know, and we have these children that have come from broken places and have been let down by many people that were supposed to have their yeah. back and support Thank them. Yeah. So our house looks a lot different than other people's houses. And I, and I see the biggest differences as parents are always comparing themselves to the next person. I think mm-hmm. it's part of the Instagram generation. You know, everybody's busy looking at the highlight reel of everyone else. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then kind of what I heard you just say too, is like just some of us have different goals in parenting and my goal in parenting isn't to raise up a obedient. Yes child who always does exactly what I tells him to tell him to do. I mean, there's something about that that would be easy, right? <laughs> but when it when I'm regulated, when it comes right down to it, like that is not my goal. Like my goal is to, you know, raise a kid who is, you know, emotionally and mentally and physically healthy and able to make decisions and um you know, also able to deal with the consequences of some decisions that aren't very good or that don't work out for him the way that he was hoping they were going to. And I'm not really interested in making my kid do, again, when I'm regulated, (laughs) I'm in my right brain, I'm not really interested in making my kid do anything. I want to support him and nurture him and help grow his brain so that he is the capacities to make decisions for himself that work out for him right well it's like our 12 year old daughter right now with everything going on in the world all the hair salons are shut down and this and that and she's been looking at different hairstyles and she wants to do this and do that and she wanted it Uh cut and she wanted it highlighted and all these other Uh things i'm like well we can't do that right now you know and she kept pushing me she's like can i i'll just i'll cut my hair myself i'll do it myself Mm -hmm. and finally i looked at her i'm like you know what if you want to cut your hair go cut your hair it's just hair Mm -hmm. It's going to come back, you know, even if it looks a little funny or, or you don't like it, it's going to come back. And, you know, most people are like, oh, don't let her cut her hair. She's going to mess it up. You never know. She might have something she really likes. Totally. (laughs) I think hair is an easy way for parents to say yes to things because now I also am not overly, um, conscious of my own hair like i've always sort of had the attitude of like well let's try something and if we hate it it grows back that's the cool thing about hair right (laughs) but i think hair is a really easy way to let your kid you know experiment with their likes and preferences and their you know individuality because just like you said like it's it grows back it's not nothing is permanent yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's nothing like when they come home with a tattoo, right? That is way different. And if we give our kids lots of opportunities to express themselves in things like hair, we might, 
you know, head off the uh, possibility of them coming home with a tattoo. Maybe not, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not mad at people with tattoos because God knows I have my fair share of them. Yeah, and so does my wife. But at sure. 14, exactly. I really hate to see you go out and try and get your friend to do a, uh, a kitchen tattoo of your favorite band's name. Cause, well, one of our kids at 14 right. wanted a Mr. Potato Head on his forehead. That's true. Yeah. Too. I mean, that's an actual true story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, so, uh, no. Those 14 year old decisions are always awesome. So, what would you say to the parents right. that are out there comparing themselves to everybody else? Well, one thing is, I do think it's helpful to just know yourself as a parent and know, like, well, what what are my goals as parents? And consider the possibility that other parents have different goals. And that's okay. They're allowed to have their goals. You can have your goals. I think that can help. Um, That can help a little bit. And something to do when you're, like, really regulated and calm and have some free time is really go, like, what are my parenting goals and values and ideals? Um, And then the other thing, I think, is to really practice a lot of self-compassion. Like, we're all doing the very best that we can with the information that we have at any given moment. And my child's behavior is not the litmus test for my ability as as a parent, right? Like that's not where I can get my information from about whether I'm a good parent or a bad parent Um, is my behaviors or my kids' behaviors, especially how they compare to other kids. Um, They're not, they're not related. So I think if we can, you know, again, examine our parenting values, practice lots of self-compassion and, and realize that our kids' behaviors aren't what define our success as parents. We're going to come a long way in that comparison game. You know, you mentioned that the dad's group that I mentioned, I'm a part of, I have a friend in there. I've known him for a good long while and his two daughters by most standards would be considered just amazing kids he has twin yeah. girls they are i think 13 or 14 and right now because we you know we're recording this in the midst of this whole covid 19 thing and everybody's right. in the house and right now right he's he's struggling right he's got yeah. twin teenage yes. girls I, I don't envy the guy but yeah. you know on, on a at a glance from the outside they've got it made they you mm-hmm. know they they go out there they're I don't know what level they play golf at a, at a competitive level. They have mm-hmm. great grades They They play competitive chess. They, they have all these things that they do so amazingly well at. And when we compare ourselves to that, we, what you don't know is that some of these kids struggle with things like depression. Some of these kids right. are struggling with all kinds of other stuff. Some of these kids right. are real pain to deal with at home some days as most kids are at some point. Right. But, as we all are, <laughs> but very few people yeah. are willing to put that out there to people in the world that, Hey, you know, we're struggling with this. And I think that's one of the pieces that, that I love about this particular group I'm in is that it is a place where guys come and are honest and vulnerable. And we don't do that very often, you know, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. That's the highlight reel. It doesn't tell the truth of what your world is. Right. And our world is so difficult and learning to, to be able to reach inside of yourself and tell those stories to other people and be honest and open. That's the only Mm -hmm. place I found to create some real honest conversation with people who are struggling and yeah. who can help us when we're struggling because we're willing to tell them our story. Well, and people Absolutely. don't want to be judged. They feel like if they put these things out there, they're a bad parent. They're not doing what they should. They're not doing the best that they can do. But I mean, the thing is, is we all fall short. We all need help. And if we don't put it out there, if we don't ask for help or put our questions out there, you can't do better. Right. Yeah, I mean, we're all just perfectly human and, you know, we struggle, our kids struggle, you know, people are difficult. It's not just our kids who are difficult, like humans are difficult. Absolutely. I Um, I know I'm difficult on a good day. Exactly. I know, me too, (laughs) right? And so to remind ourselves of that about kids too, right, that adults are struggling, even a crisis aside, adults struggle with their behavior all all day long. And for the most part, we give people we love a lot of grace um, as long as the behavior is not, you know, abusive or dangerous. And, and our kids, I think, can deserve the same thing and deserve us not to 
project like our own needs about needing to be seen as a good parent onto them. Um, I know you've talked a lot about regulation, you know, regulating (laughs) yourself. Um, For someone who really isn't familiar about that, maybe some of our listeners don't really have a good idea about what that looks like. How do you, what are some ways that you can try to regulate yourself when you're in that big, you know, that big emotion with your kid and, you know, you're losing your ever living, loving crap and so is the child and things are just escalating. What are some ways that you can regulate? Well, I think the first thing to do is to be sure we're all defining regulation correctly because a lot of people think regulated means calm and it doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, Regulated means like mindful, kind of connected to self, in charge of my behaviors, but it doesn't have to mean calm. So I regulated doesn't mean I never get mad. Um, some behaviors are unacceptable and I have every right to take a stance and say, Hey, knock it off. That's not okay. I'm not okay with that. Um, so that's the very first thing is I'm not pretending that we all are looking to become like Zen master, um, you know, calm, always just, you know, never getting like our feathers ruffled by any means. That's not a, that's not a reasonable expectation, nor would it be healthy. Um, so regulated is about being able to kind of maintain that pause, um, and stay in charge of what I'm saying or what I'm doing and learning to track our own signs and symptoms of starting to get really close to being you know, past the point of no return where I'm no longer kind of in charge of my behaviors and I'm saying or doing things that I wouldn't otherwise, um, you know, it's where we end up making, you know, threats that we look back and we're like, why did I even say that? Like, that's not a threat I could even follow through on. Right. Um, So really taking the time, usually after things have been escalated to kind of look back and go, okay, what signs did I miss or not pay attention to in myself that I was starting to get close to that place of no return? Um, what does that feel like in my body? What is my, some, some of it is what does my voice sound like? A lot of us get louder. Our voices get higher pitched. Our bodies get tenser. We tend to take a more aggressive stance um, in our posturing. You know, we all have different things that we do. And if we can notice those things sooner, we can one, possibly call a pause, like, whoa, 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 whoa. We need to take a break from each other for a minute. I'm going to go to this other room and get a drink and and then I'll come back. Also knowing a lot of our kids don't let us call a pause. (laughs) So if we can't call a pause, like a literal, like I need a break, then we've got to develop some skills to do in the moment, you know, and it can be, it really literally can be as simple as taking a really good breath. Oftentimes, even the act of noticing, like, oh, I'm noticing my voice is loud or I'm noticing my shoulders are are tight. Often just the noticing actually allows us to go, oh, just for a second and grab just a little more regulation. Um, But we all kind of have our own thing. Some of us can develop some mantras. Um, This is not about me. My child is doing the best that they can. Um, it won't help my child if I escalate too, right? Like we can maybe develop a, like a mantra, um, breathing, something that I think can be really effective for both us and the child that we're in, um, a challenge with is if we get lower than them. And so sometimes I'll recommend like sitting down. If you are standing, sit down or crouch down on the floor or sit down on the floor because changing our body like that is, can be helpful for our own regulation. And it also sends a message to the person we're in relationship with that, like, I don't want to look dangerous to you. 
And then that lets them sort of ease off a little bit too, because their fear centers kind of back off a little. So we kind of have to all learn our own like tips and tricks and techniques. And we do that by starting to track ourselves and really notice. Um, and, and then back to what we talked about at the very beginning is re remembering to interpret what our children are doing accurately and that it's not about us and they're not doing it to us or because we're a bad parent or because they're a bad kid. They're struggling in that moment and need help. You know, part of what I heard you saying there is the importance of body language. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know are, if you're familiar with Chris Voss. He wrote the book, um, Never Split the Difference. <clears throat> it's a. Um, no. It was written kind of as, I think, a, a push towards the business world. But Chris Voss was the uh, lead negotiator for the FBI's international hostage team for a long time. Okay. And um, I had an opportunity to talk with him one day. And he recommended the book... Um, the Power of Body Language by, I think it's Joe Navarro, who okay. was another FBI guy. And he spoke a lot about that. And and Chris, you know, because he's dealt with negotiations, he talks a lot about those sorts of things as well. And one of the things I took out of that is oftentimes when my kids are, are really are really going after it, right? When they're, mm-hmm. they're, they seem to be looking for some problems in their life. What, I, what I've found works so well for me is to be able to come over here and sit in my chair Sit down, take my voice down a little bit, slow the cadence, breathe yep. in between, and yes. and let those mirror neurons. It's part of that that whole process. Bring them yeah. back down. But I had yeah. a, a, one question though. I, I do have one particular kid who mm-hmm. who really seems to occasionally he gets to the point where he's he's not ready to hear like the mm-hmm. quiet voice yet. And yeah. sometimes it almost seems like the most helpful thing I can do is to go ahead and to. And, and be very intentional. This is difficult for me to do. And I don't know if there's, if it's the right thing to do or if it's even, mm-hmm. I'm doing it the right way, but I will go ahead and let him escalate that, that emotion all the way up. And we'll get to the point where the, it turns into true emotion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, usually I see that accompanied by tears and, and some real frustrations that kind of just pour out. And then after that, I have a short window of time where I feel like I can mm-hmm. really talk into a soul. And we usually always leave that conversation in a calm and peaceful place. Mm-hmm. Is that something that, that you, you find is helpful for some kids to, to let them escalate that to that point or, or no? Well, I mean, I don't know that you have much of a choice, right? That like, if the child was able to be kind of co-regulated, they probably would be. And so even just sort of shifting the language around can be helpful. You're not necessarily letting him do that. You are providing support and containment to him while he is expressing what sounds like a very real, you know, experience or intensity in his, in his body. And he needs that to be sort of, held and witnessed and then he needs somebody to be there when he starts to be ready to kind of reconnect or shift there's definitely a a place in a intensity of dysregulation or we could use the word tantrum where where we go from like anger 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 and all of a sudden the like the tone of it just shifts a little and it feels a little more almost despondent And there's this like clear place of like, now I'm ready for you to help me. Um, And so it's really important then when possible to just stay close enough to our kids, like physically close enough and emotionally available enough that when they do shift to that, we can then move in and help support them and co-regulate them, which is really hard to do if a kid has been screaming and yelling and you know, really awful towards you. Um, so again, it's all about just keeping their behaviors in context, remembering why this kid is doing this. Remember my job is to be there when this kid's ready for me, you know, to support, to support him. Yeah. That's, that's been a real challenge to kind of figure out how to do that. Cause he, he's the first yeah. kid we've had who really, who really yeah. goes that way. Most of the rest of my kids, are more of the personality type where I can just calm them and it's okay. Uh-huh. 
<clears throat> but I know that some of the some of the what I've learned, and I haven't done the um, the Myers Briggs personality stuff at this point yet. But I know I've uh-huh. I've done some looking into the Enneagram personality typing uh-huh. system, which is really interesting that some kids like the one you can hear hollering in the background right now. <laughs> you know, some of them are, are really they're, they're wired for challenge. Yes, whatever some kids you are just, People are just big and intense and. And intense people want to be mirrored by intensity and they don't come down as quite as easily. And and just like you said, some of this is just inborn temperament personality stuff. Yeah, it's amazing how much some of these kids are wired. Yeah. Just so wildly different. You know, you yeah. have kids who who are from the same parents, even some parents I know who have had twins. Yes. They're genetically identical. So different. Yeah. But they're physically, you know, or not even physically, but mentally wired to respond so totally differently. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes that's a real challenge, you know, and and I get that response a lot from some of my kids. Well, you don't treat me the same way you treat him. Uh Uh-huh. So, yeah, you're right. I don't. Uh Uh-huh. I I respond to you differently because you're different. Yeah. You know? Well, you you don't do this, you know, or you don't make him do this and you make me do that. I, I get it. Like you do, you do these chores partly because you're part of the family, partly because guess who did those chores when you were little? Mm-hmm. So the older kids probably aren't yeah. washing as many dishes and doing as much laundry right now. And give it a few years, and the ones doing it now are going to be the ones who step out of it, and our little ones are going to be taking care of that, and they're going to have the same yeah. argument. But you don't want me to treat you like I do my 19 year old. Because he's out of high school, he's he's grown, and he has a job. And if you're going to continue to live here in my house, and you want to stay here, you're going to pay rent. Because, mm-hmm. not because I need your rent money, but because I want you to grow into a good human and have that experience of paying bills every month. Very low, very reasonable rent, but just the same, you need the, to build that muscle. And I'm training that. And I'm not expecting you to, tr- to pay rent in my house because you're 14. Your 19-year-old brother's going to pay rent, though. And I'm not going to treat you like the, the, your five-year-old little brother because you would probably be really disappointed if I did. Right. You know, my, my idea of screen time for a five-year-old is much different than it is for a teenager. And you would be so sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, it's But it's a challenge for them because I think the teen years seem like they really are focused a lot on fairness at that age. Uh-huh. And Well, and... That's okay, right? Like, like they have a right to their feelings, and they have a right to feel like things aren't fair, and that they wish things were different. Okay, you're absolutely welcome to feel that way. <laughs> That's the conversation we've had. So yeah. I, it's good yeah. to hear that I'm not the only one who feels that way. You're, yeah. you're allowed to have your opinion. Just do me a favor, absolutely, and, and and make sure that when you want to express that opinion, you do it in a way that has some level of human respect in it. Yeah, Don't exactly. say it to me in a way you wouldn't want me to say it to you, and we're good right. to go. Exactly. But I'm open to hearing your opinion. I don't want it screamed at me. But um, yeah, I don't expect my kids to always be happy about all, you know, gleefully, joyously doing chores or doing things that he doesn't want to do. I don't do chores gleefully and joylessly either. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So he's allowed to be unhappy about them. We don't scream at each other in our family, you know, so both get to be true. We can have a feeling. Let's learn how to express that feeling appropriately. Yeah. And that's like I said, that listening and having the opportunity to talk to Chris Voss is one who really taught me how to, how to be very intentional about my body language and my tone and the way that I approach things. And learning how to label emotions to some extent so that I can yep. say, what yep. I hear, hear is, you sound yeah. really frustrated to me. You're so mad, yeah. And if he's not frustrated and he's he's angry in a different way, he will correct me. Yep. Turns out yep. that he doesn't have a problem correcting me when I'm wrong. Yeah. And not just yep, him, but is, all of them. I tell <laughs> that to therapists and parents alike that we can attempt to label a feeling because when we're wrong, kids will tell us. <laughs> it's yeah. I, and I use this example a lot because I have a, let's see, six now and my six year old, um, he was in, in the office one day and we were having a conversation about something, some behavior. I don't remember what it was. And, um, no, it wasn't even that it was, it was just a conversation and he'd asked me a question and I was sitting there thinking, and, and my my brow furrows like that when I think. And he looks at me, and all of a sudden he breaks into tears, and I'm I'm lost. I'm like, what what's going on, dude? Why are you upset? Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. says, "You're mad at me." Mm-hmm. I'm not mad at you. 
No, you're yeah. mad. I'm like, and so I finally just said, well, why, why would, why do you think I'm mad at you, bud? And he furrows up his, his face and he goes, because when you go like this, it means you're mad at me. I'm like, mm-hmm. Oh, I get it. Like I was speaking so much, so many volumes out of my body language that I yeah. didn't realize he was reading. But if you yeah. think about it, especially younger kids, their first language is not, you know, English or anything verbal. Their first right. language is to learn to read body language. And we have to learn to speak that back to them in every way, because even at five and at 10 and at 15, they still speak body language and the unconscious things, our frustrations, I think, come out in that way sometimes. And that's a hard one to get a hold of so that Mm -hmm. because you really do have to get a hold of that emotion, it seems, in order to change your body language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you do. That's one of the things I've learned is that I can I can try and control little pieces of it, but I don't have the the mental bandwidth to control all the pieces of my body language at once. Right. Oh. <clears throat> um, and now, as far as that goes, in order to learn to do that, I, I one of the things I've learned for me is that some sort of like like self care practice on a regular basis, being intentional about that, even sure. when I don't feel like I need it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That seems to be the most valuable thing. What kind of self-care practices do you, do you usually give for, for parents to try so that they can keep themselves fairly well regulated when their kids are not? Well, I tend to recommend pretty generic things because I think what works for people really varies, you know, person to person. Um, I tend to think about how all of us need opportunities to have some play or playfulness in our lives. What that means varies person to person. Um, I really talk with parents about developing like a practice of self-compassion and being kind to themselves, really changing that voice in their head. Um, And I also talk with parents a lot about, especially parents who are really deep in the trenches Um, you know, being really intentional about noticing things in their life or in their world that aren't bad. Um, when things are really hard and there's lots of trauma happening in our, in our lives, our brain gets really focused on those hard things. It's supposed to, that's how we're trying to keep ourselves safe. But then what happens is we lose sight of noticing the the things that's like the normal everyday regular things in life that um, that are good. And we, we, our brain stops noticing them and it can be things like your morning cup of coffee, or um, it can be things like noticing that when you turn on the shower, you can always expect hot water to come out of it. Um, it doesn't have to be, these don't have to be like, groundbreaking things, but it is awesome that when I get in the shower, I always expect hot water (laughs) to come out of it. Um, It is. (laughs) So, yeah. So those are, those are sort of the three big things, finding something that's, that you experience as play or playful and infusing that in your life pretty regularly Um, developing a practice of self-compassion, noticing the things in your life that, um, that are good, even when it feels like almost everything isn't good. So the idea of, of that whole self-regulation, I think is probably really supported by what I'm hearing you saying by, by using those, those pieces of of self-care, you know, and I'm not terribly good with the play. You know, I work yeah. a, a I work a big work week usually. Here in this last um, this last you know little bit with with businesses slowing down and everything, my work has slowed down to roughly fifty hours a week instead of sixty, mm-hmm. which you know gives me a little bit more time. But you mm-hmm. know, we run a podcast and we have now six kids in the house, so yeah. we we don't have a whole lot of time. I think sometimes to to dedicate towards play, and I think right. that's one of my struggles is realizing the importance of that. It's not just about me going out and having fun and enjoying life and and being, you know, flippant and and irresponsible, but it's actually the responsible thing to do to take the time to to go do something that you can see as play and that hopefully your kids can see too. Because, you know, as one guy I know um, told us one day, he says, don't worry, your kids are listening, even when you Mm -hmm. don't think they are. But worry, because your kids are watching even when you don't think they are. Mm-hmm. And we, some of, so many of, of my bad characteristics, my bad habits, I see pop up in my kids and it drives me crazy mm-hmm. to know that I'm training that I'm training them sometimes to, to take the play out of their life. 
Yeah. Well, and also I think for, for parents really deep in the trenches who are like, I can't even get away from my kid or I don't have any free time, you know, that that we don't necessarily, it's awesome if you can have the time to go do something that's playful, but you know, we could take something mundane that we're doing every day anyway, and just see if we can add like playfulness into it. Can I wash dishes in a more playful way? Can I brush my teeth in a more playful way? Can I straighten up the kitchen after dinner in a, like a way that I feel more playful? Um, and that it can at first, especially for people who are really struggling, these things feel really trite and really misattuned to how hard their lives are. And I totally get that. Um, and sometimes you just kind of have to take a leap of faith and trust that practicing something really small every day will actually help you, um, in the long run. Yeah. That's the analogy I've heard is, is, um, turning the battleship around, right? Yeah. You know, that when the captain says, turn it around, it's not like you can just flip it around just a couple degrees at a time. is all you get to change that. But, but it's that 1% every day that makes makes that long-term difference. Yeah. It's hard to see. It's hard to stay the course, but it's so important. Yep. You know, for the sake of our kids to learn the things that we should, should have already learned. Yeah. I, I hate that word should, right? We should have already learned it. We're the place we're at because of what we've experienced in our life, but we can definitely give so much to our children that we haven't yet done sometimes because of where we come from. Exactly. And I think that's that self-compassion piece you're talking about is understanding that, you know, we've, we've made a lot of mistakes, right? I've got a 21 year old son who I can sit back and talk to him about some of the mistakes we made when he was young. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a real thing. Like I screwed him up in ways. I've had to come to terms with that. There's some ways I've screwed him up because I was, we were young parents, Yeah. you know, and my, my poor, Boy, <laughs> I told him, look, you were like a science experiment gone wrong, bud. <laughs> you know, we didn't know what we were doing. They handed us a kid and said, good luck. Mm-hmm. They forgot to put the instruction book in the bag when we stuck you, you know, when we stuck you in the car seat. We didn't know what we were doing. We, but understanding that nobody does, mm-hmm. you know, my own parents didn't. And for the things that my parents maybe did that, that I look at and go, yeah, I didn't like, I didn't care for that. I don't want to do that with my kids, but they were doing the thing that they knew how to do at the time. And yeah. that having that compassion for yourself to know that we're all doing the best we can. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Always. And as long as we're not putting people in danger, you know, you, you just have compassion and know that you're going to mess up and you have to mm-hmm. learn from it. And if you learn from it, that's, that's the value. That's why yeah. it's okay to mess a kid up a little bit because they'll, they'll grow out of it. <laughs> I'd like to think that I did. Well, we certainly can't aim to be perfect parents. That wouldn't be reasonable, nor would it be good. So, yeah. Don't tell my kids that. I'm trying to convince them I'm perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I found the biggest thing with our our children is when things do get crazy and out of control, you know, is coming back after the moment, you know, when Uh things have calmed down and, and talk about what has happened and being real with my children and saying, hey, you know, Mom lost it. I'm sorry. You know, I shouldn't have done this or I shouldn't have behaved that way. You know, I behaved poorly. You know, and I've found that with my children, that's been a big thing is, you know, because I make mistakes too. And my kids need to see that I make mistakes. And they need to see that I can own them responsibly and apologize when it needs to be done. And, you know, I've found that that's been a big thing, especially with our 14 year old, because me and him, we, we go head to head quite often. We, mm-hmm. we both have personalities that just, you know, sometimes we just clash, you know, and I'll come back to him and I'll be like, buddy, hey, you know, I apologize. You know, we were, we got into it about this, but it really turned into about this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before you realize it, so many things do that. Yeah. You know, emotion sparks something else from previous and, you know, so coming back to your children and, and treating them like they're people with respect and, you know, I get more, more respect out of my children when I give them that, you know, just because Absolutely. they're kids yeah. doesn't mean that they need to be treated poorly. Right. So, right. 
Yeah. You mentioned uh, gratitude earlier. Do you, do you have any gratitude practices that you that you recommend to to parents? A way to to be intentional about the, having that gratitude for your life, for your kids, in in a way that that can help you search for that throughout your day. I personally, and with parents, you know, really in the trenches, parents that I work with have found. Um, the idea of being intentional about looking for things in your life that aren't bad um, to be a help in some ways more helpful than an actual gratitude practice because gratitude emerges from, you know, mindful awareness of the things in your life that aren't bad. And I've had a lot of, especially parents that are struggling really badly um, to feel really turned off by the idea of having a gratitude practice. Um, so yeah, the, the idea of noticing what's good because eventually gratitude follows. Uh, it just emerges from that. I like that. I like that yeah. because I've, I've suggested to, to a handful of people I know, you know, sit down and try and develop a gratitude practice and everybody kind of pushes against that to some level, especially when you're in a bad head space, it's yeah. hard to be thankful when yeah, you're not feeling exactly yeah so so that's i like that idea just yeah just focus on the things that that aren't bad in your life and spend some time in that so that the gratitude can naturally emerge yeah yeah mm-hmm. so i have to ask what brought you into this this world of psychotherapy and dealing with kids with complex trauma how how did you find yourself in that world it's just really all I've ever done. Um, I've been interested in working with kids who've had, have had, you know, really bad things happen to them since I was like a teenager. I found um, some books that I really enjoyed and just was like, huh, I think that's what I want to do with my life. And it's basically all I've, all I've ever done. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not the most exciting story. Well, but, yeah, but I yeah. mean, it, it's really interesting that, that you could see that as a potential career path, even as a yeah. young, you know, as a, as young as being a teenager, because yeah. most teenagers are, let's face it, they're kind of focused on <laughs> other things usually. Yeah. You know, my teens are, are more interested in how they can make a whole lot of money and be rich and not have to work very much. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> uh, well, I, and one of the questions I usually ask people is, is what uh-huh. sets your soul on fire? But it's pretty obvious that that helping kids through their, their complex traumas is a big piece of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm just so, I love my work. I'm super grateful for my work. Um, you know, I feel like... There's a never-ending need to do this work, and although that's really sad, it is what it is, and I have the opportunity every day to get up and make a difference um, and support kids and support families, and I'm yeah, I'm really grateful to be able to do this work. Well, that's awesome. If you had to, yeah. to reach in and, and give the best piece of advice, you know, what what wisdom you've pulled out of your life and your experience, because God knows, you know, we've had a lot of experience in our life, but as somebody who works with kids and families on a regular basis, you know, what kind of, what piece of wisdom would you give to a parent who's, who's struggling through figuring out how to deal with trauma? What would be the most important pieces of that for you? Well, the, the most important piece really for parents to do is to figure out their own stuff like what gets to me, what triggers me, what prevents me from staying really mindful and aware and to be able to set boundaries without being scary or without punishing. Um, that is hands down the most important thing for parents to do. And it's not because we're bad parents or because it's our fault in any way, shape or form. That's just part of being human. Um, that a lot of times we know what to do or at least how, what to do for this particular child. If I can just stay like focused and regulated enough to use my thinking brain to make those, to make those choices. So it's a really hard thing to want to do. Um, as when you've got kids who are super out of control, um, to have somebody say, well, really the most important thing you need to do is, is focus on learning more about yourself um, can feel really ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and I totally get that. And it actually still is the most important thing to do. Well, that's, that's great. Yeah. Uh, how would, yeah. how would you, you, 
how would somebody begin a journey of learning about their own stuff? Um, lots of self-reflection, reading books. There's a couple, uh, um, you know, I, I typically recommend parenting from the inside out, although that's a pretty, it's a difficult book to read. It's just really heavy. Um, raising a secure child is a really, really good book to start the process of learning about self and, um, and self-reflection. And I also think, the other pieces we talked about, you know, be, be, being sure to infuse playfulness into our lives, noticing the good and being self-compassion. Those are going to change um, how regulated our nervous systems are. And then we're going to be more self-reflective simply by nature. It's just going to happen. Okay. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll make sure that we, uh, we put a link to that book up. I'm sure you can find it on Amazon. They have everything else yeah. on there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> because yeah, any, any context like that for parents to be able to begin that journey would be really helpful. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. is there anything else that, that, that you'd like to add in before we get off of here? Well, I, we've covered a lot of just, this has been great. So thank you. <laughs> hey, I appreciate you taking the time to come on here because yeah. Like I said, you know, I found you online. I, I wish mm -hmm. I could tell you how exactly. Um, um, one I of, actually, um, through a foster support group, someone had posted a link, and uh, I took a look at it and sent it over to you. Oh, okay. So <laughs> it was my wife's doing that, that she sent yeah, yeah. it my way. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> like most good things in life, I've exactly, gotten it from my exactly. wife. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, no, you know, having wretched out, you know, putting yourself out into into the social media world and being willing to uh, talk to other people and and engage with the world at large where we all need some piece of help. That's just been mm -hmm. a great thing and allowed us to, to connect with you and hopefully to be able to talk to our entire audience and, and maybe help some people figure out that piece of self-regulation, help some people yeah. figure out how to, how to work through the complex tra trauma in their own lives. And eventually the, the complex traumas that, that their kids are facing because you don't have to have a kid who's adopted or in foster care to have experienced some really difficult traumas. Exactly. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, yeah. I bet a lot of the kids that you, you deal with on a regular basis are from both foster and bio families. I tend to focus on working with kids who have been adopted, but that it does not mean that it's exclusive to kids who have been adopted by any means. That's just the work that I do. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, all right. Well, I appreciate you spending some time on here with us today. And I, uh, I'm certain that lots of people will get a ton of value out of this. Yeah. So. Thanks for having me. And thanks for doing what y'all are doing. Well, if you didn't get any value out of that interview, you aren't listening or you don't know that you know people who need some trauma help. At any rate, make sure you go by Robin's website at globalcounseling.com and check out the webinar she has to offer. There's a lot of value there. Also, don't forget the books she mentioned, Parenting from the Inside Out and Raising a Secure Child. I'll try and get them both linked up in the podcast notes. You can find those over at fosterCareNation.com. Both of those books are available on Amazon as well. We hope to see you next week. And as always, thanks for listening!